MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 36 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, September 22nd. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. And with me, as always, is Andrew Torres. Oh, Allison, thank you, as always, for our main story today. We have a great interview with former prosecutor Randall Eisen breaking down the Michael Sussman indictment. And uh, I can't wait to get to that. Uh, we've got breaking news about Alan Weisselberg and changes uh, over at the DOJ. So just a jam-packed show. Uh, and of course, always cover comings and goings. But first... We have to thank our new patrons who have supported us over at patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod for as little as a buck an episode. Yes. And thank you for giving me this list of names. (laughs) 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 A sincere thank you to Alibibet. Do I have that right? Alibibet Rudolphus. Hugh Borg. Resistance is futile. Dustin Haviv. Uh, When will you clean up Alan Dershowitz? Excuse me. Amanda Burns Art. Wonderful. Thank you, Amanda. Empress Me. Not Impress, but Empress Me. And Thrawn, a new live-action Star Wars fan film, is raising funds on Indiegogo, and they need your support. Hey, you know, you you give us a buck, we will read about your Indiegogo campaign, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, which I assume is some kind of uh, Germanic uh, Libibet Rudolphus. That's a fantastic name. Anyway, thank I you all it. so much for supporting the show. Patreon.com slash aisle45pod if you want to join them. A-I-S-L-E 4-5-P-O-D. And now, on to the A block. Oh, and what a good A block it is. <laughs> now, on Monday, as part of a routine status conference, just trial scheduling and whatnot, we got to hear Trump org CFO Alan Weisselberg's lawyer state in open court Regarding the New York criminal indictment of Weisselberg and the Trump Organization, which, of course, we covered here on Clean Up on Aisle 45. And the news did not disappoint. As Weisselberg's (laughs) lawyer said in court, uh, they have strong reasons to believe, quote, other indictments are coming. Weisselberg and the Trump Organization pleaded not guilty to 15 felony counts in July, if you'll remember. Yep. And look, this is consistent with what we thought at the time and continue to think, right, which is that the indictment, while serious, was meant to squeeze Weisselberg, right? And, you know, he's the guy I'm going to continue to describe as, you know, the one who knows where they've buried all the bodies. (laughs) Um, 
the reason you would want to squeeze him, that, that there are only a couple of people above him on the org chart, right? Senior members of the Trump family crime syndicate. Uh, and and again, to make that a real threat, um, he faces serious felony charges, right? Grand larceny and creating a scheme to defraud the IRS out of tax revenues, um, not just the IRS, but also uh, New York State tax authorities. Um, and uh, that is the allegation that is part of a, quote, sweeping and audacious payment scheme. Uh, Weisselberg personally did not pay taxes on $1.7 million of income, which included things like, you know, palatial Manhattan apartment cars, free tuition for his grandkids and, you know, all the other things that you have to pay taxes on if you're a normal person. Yes, ba bags of cash. Yeah. Uh, and the Manhattan DSA, DA's office at the time indicated they were continuing to investigate the Trump org, particularly in connection with the valuation and taxes paid on real estate acquisitions, mm -hmm. for which the evidence we have already, uh, we've seen it. Uh, it seems to be pretty damning, thanks to the New York Times. But I have a question, Andrew. Weisselberg was indicted in, in July, June 30th, as part of this scheme to defraud federal New York State and New York City tax authorities of revenue by filing false tax returns. Why are we here for a status conference? <laughs> it turns out that financial crimes are really, really complicated, right? And when you're talking about a deliberate artifice from people who have been criming for decades and are good at it, it's even more complicated, right? So here, the, the state prosecutors have turned over six million pages of documents in discovery. And look, like, I, I mean, I hate Weisselberg as much as anyone, but his argument today was, hey, um... My lawyers need some time to review those six million documents that prepare my defense. And like uh, speaking as a lawyer, uh, that's that's not a terrible argument. No. Right. But he lost that argument, too. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> Judge Merchant. Is it Merchant or Mercan? I, 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 I'm not familiar I think with it's judge. Merchant, but Merchant. it's Juan, Juan Merchant. Well, he, he's at a pretrial motion um, deadline of January 20th, my birthday. 2022. Yep. So that seems to suggest to me that you've got to get through all these documents before the end of the year, digest them, and then file whatever you think you can. Mm -hmm. uh, right? Because, uh, I mean, it's not like, I mean, yeah, the trial's further out, but the, the pretrial motions are January 20th. Yep. And Weiselberg's lawyer requested more time, but the judge seemed to side with the prosecutors who claimed they gave Weiselberg's defense team the core documents back in the beginning of July. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And look, wh while the judge didn't say this, I... I get the sense that there's also a notion that the complexity claims here are due to the defense's own making. Right. Mm. So, for example, we, we have already seen court documents showing that, you know, just days before this indictment came down, Weisselberg resigned from a trust set up to control the Trump org assets. And, I, you know, when it looks like you're playing a shell game. Right. That's that's not a great look in front of the judge. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, sure is complex because of right. you. Right, exactly. Um, and so while we're waiting for my birthday, uh, mm. I, I want to close with noting that Weisselberg's lawyers were very clear about what they think is happening in this case, arguing that Weisselberg is about to become, quote, collateral damage in the Manhattan DEA's broader probe into the Trump org. But the DA's office defended the seriousness of the charges against Weisselberg, noting, quote, with respect to the relevant financial documents, Mr. Weisselberg is the boss. He's not collateral damage here. <laughs> He's an executive. He, he he has been indicted by the grand jury, quote unquote. So, yeah, we'll see. 
Yeah. And look, like this is always the dance you do when you have indicted somebody hoping that he will flip higher up the food chain. Right. Like you've got to convince the judge in that case. Oh, no, like we are serious and we will go forward against Weisselberg. And, uh, you know, that that I, I think they've hit that balance here. Right. Like his crimes are not, you know, nothing. <laughs> No, yeah, and I, that was clear. Um, I think from the, from the get go, you and I stated that when we when we yep. first got these indictments. And I, you know, I just want to remind everybody that this grand jury was impaneled in May. It was a special grand jury impaneled for six months. So this grand jury is on the job until November ish. You know, so there's still a couple few months to to hear more about it. Yep, absolutely, and and I I think. We have every reason to think that uh, Weisselberg's lawyer's statements are uh, going to be prophetic. Yeah. And they also said something about, um, you know, well, because there are more indictments coming, this this case could get more complicated. But the, the judge was like that uh, additional indictments don't have anything to do with you necessarily. Um, but, you know, I do want to say that before. The hearing went public, was open to the public. They had like a sidebar, the defense attorneys and um, the prosecutors and the judge, uh, apparently about some tranche of documents they found in a co-conspirator's basement. And now there's a lot of speculation about who that co-conspirator is. <laughs> uh, I think it's Tony from The Sopranos, but it could be really um, probably Calamari is my first thought, but it could also yeah. be McConney, who's who's testified before the grand jury. And in New York, that means you have immunity in what you testify to. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But I haven't heard anything about formal cooperation agreements with anybody yet. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But there's still there's still a lot to go here. Um, but yeah. it does appear that more indictments are coming. Yep. I think all those are the right things to watch. So we'll be doing that. All right, everybody, we'll be right back with the B Block. We've got a couple of cleanup stories for you, but we have to take mm -hmm. a quick break. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Allison, and this portion of a Cleanup on L45 is brought to you by Feels CBD. CBD isn't about what you feel. CBD is about what you don't feel. Stress, anxiety, and pain, that's what CBD gets rid of. If you haven't tried it, I recommend it. In addition to being safe and organic, it's helped reduce pain and anxiety for me. It has helped me sleep better as well, and it's helped me with a chill mood. With Feels, you can keep a clear head and feel great, too. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. There's no hangover or addiction. My feeling of calm has improved, and my muscles are less sore after workouts. My mood is lifted. Uh, I don't get agitated easily, and I'm able to fall asleep a lot easier than I was before at night. So feel the difference within minutes, but you place a few drops of feels under your tongue. Feels is delivered hassle-free to your house too and directly to you with the, without the need for a prescription. And you don't have to take a trip to the pharmacy, just right to your door. Feels can help you find the right CBD dose that suits your needs too. You just call their free CBD hotline for assistance, which is awesome. Joining the Feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel at any time. Super easy. So start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash cleanup, and you'll get 50% off your first order. 50% off your first order and free shipping. That's feels.com, F-E-A-L-S.com slash cleanup to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Again, feels.com slash cleanup. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, as promised, I got a couple of cleanup stories, starting with news out of the Department of Justice. Last Tuesday, they announced written department-wide policies explicitly prohibiting the use of chokeholds and carotid restraints 
unless deadly force is authorized and limiting the circumstances in which the department's federal law enforcement components are authorized to use unannounced entries, right? Like no knocks, Mm -hmm. which was a Breonna Taylor thing, but that wasn't those those weren't federal officers. Those were local officers. And this comes after a review of the department's law enforcement agencies by the deputy attorney general, Lisa Monaco. Uh, Andrew, what law enforcement agencies fall under this purview? Because these are only federal cops, right? Yeah. So so uh, the answer to your question is lots, right? Like it, it and I, I don't want to lose track of the point that you've made really well, which is we have a massive issue with state police beat cops. Right. And this this will not affect state police officers. It is why we need drastic reform at both the state and federal level. But that being said, uh, this covers the Department of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. It covers the DEA. It covers the FBI. It covers the Bureau of Prisons. It covers the U.S. Marshals. It covers the inspector generals. It covers the Office of Inspector General uh, heads of litigation uh, and the executive office of U.S. attorneys. So um, that's a lot of people. And mm. uh, and 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 it's a very welcome change. Let me I'm going to quote from the memorandum here, uh, which says, Given the inherent dangerousness of chokeholds and carotid restraints, and based on feedback from our law enforcement components on these techniques, department law enforcement agents and correctional officers are hereby prohibited from using a chokehold or a carotid restraint unless the standard for necessity for use of deadly force is satisfied. Um, that's going to make a big difference in our prisons and, uh, and, and with federal law enforcement. Yeah, agreed. And and the memo, as you said, you know, we said in the beginning there, it doesn't just ban chokeholds and carotid restraints. It it also addresses no knock entries. And that's why I brought up but Brianna Taylor and made the distinction that those were local muni or state police and not subject to this particular rule, which means more work needs to be done. But yeah. talk uh, talk a little bit about the no knock entries. Yeah. So when you're talking about that, the 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 principal case that we look to is a case called Hudson versus Michigan, 547 U.S. 586 uh, from 2006. Um, and, and in that decision, right, SCOTUS says sometimes it's necessary to enter a dwelling without announcing or knocking in circumstances where doing so would create a threat of physical violence to the officer. Right. Uh, or would result in the destruction of evidence or the, the knock would be futile. Right. And mm-hmm. you can see how all three of those areas can open up, you know, huge uh, avenues for, um, you, you know, uh, justification. Uh, of e- yeah. e- Exactly. Exactly. Right. And we would be remiss if we didn't point out that even when the Supreme Court has swung, uh, you know, more liberal over the past 40 years or so, um, it, it's typically not typically, you know, the the apex of. Uh, uh, criminal defense rights came from the Supreme Court in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and, you know, they've been kind of course correcting to the right ever since then. So uh, that gives a tremendous amount of leeway to, um, you know, to no knock. Mm-hmm. And and the memo says that because of the risk posed in these mm-hmm. no knock warrants, the Department of Justice is going to limit their use uh, as it is now, but they're going to limit it in two ways, right? And and looking here at the memo, it says the first way that they'll limit it, in, and here I'm quoting, an agent may seek judicial authorization to conduct a no-knock entry only if that agent has reasonable grounds to believe at the time the warrant is sought 
that knocking and announcing the agent's presence would create an imminent threat of physical violence to the agent or another person. That's it. Right. No more of the other two. And prior to seeking judicial authorization for no-knock entry, an agent must first obtain approval from both the criminal chief of the relevant U.S. attorney's office and an assistant special agent in charge or a chief, the chief deputy marshal in the district, depending on what agency you work for. Yeah, and those are real restrictions uh, that drastically change present practice. Um, the memo goes on to say that if an officer does not anticipate the need for a no-knock entry, they can only do so if there's an imminent threat of physical violence and then they must subsequently notify the agent in charge or the U.S. Marshal and provide written notice to the U.S. attorney or relevant assistant attorney general. Um, so, oh, so that's uh, like if they show up and they feel like they need to no-knock. Yeah, you know, they've, they have... Uh, you know, uh, the hostage tied to the chair and you can hear, you know, that that person screaming. Right. Like that. And, and again, exigent circumstances, imminent threat of physical violence, typically the kind of areas where, you know, you can you can find and exploit loopholes. Um, a really good way around that is requiring paperwork after the fact. Right. Um, and, and the reason you do that is because that memorializes, I mean, A, it's work and nobody likes to do extra work. Uh, but B, it also memorializes the story. Right. So you can't just kind of keep malleably morphing things to fit, you know, whatever, uh, you, you know, internal investigation is going on. You've got to say immediately after using your known I, I did it for these reasons mm. and that's the kind of thing that that if you've lied about it uh then uh subsequent uh investigations could could reveal you know physical evidence that contradicts that story not perfect but uh but but a good step yeah and and question for you the one thing that this memo doesn't address is th th because this new policy takes away the uh, a reason you can't you can no longer no knock if you think there there could be a destruction of evidence happening on the other side of the door and they don't address i'm immediately thinking of weisselberg and trump and stone and manafort <laughs> like like they're in there shredding documents um they don't say what your remedy is in that case yeah so uh, it's a really good point, and, and and let me kind of break that down in two ways, right? So, number one, you can announce an internal policy that is a subset of what is constitutionally permissible, and that's sort of what they've done here. Um, with respect to spoliation, d destruction of evidence, uh, typically the, the remedy in that case is to ask the court to draw an adverse inference uh, as to what that evidence would have said had they not destroyed it. And um, also charge them with destruction of evidence. Exactly right. And so, you know, it would be, uh, it would not surprise me to see, you know, Weisselberg and Trump and Don Jr., you know, <laughs> shoveling pages and cramming them into the, the <laughs> into document shredders. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, but, it. but it's never a good strategy, uh, because, uh, you know, that, that, like, that's a thing that lots of criminals before you have thought of and <laughs> courts are, are really, really well equipped to deal with, oh, I'm sorry, that document doesn't exist anymore. Mm, so yeah. 
And in yeah. the in this you know digital age yep. that we're in, it's virtually impossible. How to, do you know? Yeah, how do you know? To destroy. So I agree, said. though, that we should definitely uh, use all of the no-knock exceptions on anyone associated with Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, but I really want. To... Yeah, no. I mean, you know, maybe when they're getting the the warrant, they could say, "Can we, in this case, we we are we have reason to believe they are destroying evidence." Then maybe they can, I don't know, maybe work it out ahead of time. But um, it seems like it's only for the threat of physical violence. But we'll see. I'm, 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 I'm glad that uh, they're doing what they can where they can here at yep. the Department of Justice. Uh, and the next cleanup story I want to talk about real quick is that the Biden administration has revoked a Trump era rule <laughs> again <laughs> that allowed the Department of Education to subvert state law enforcement probes of student loan servicers, predatory Ugh. student loan servicers. And this is one of a series of recent overhauls that we've talked about that could pave the way for more robust investigations into these guys. Yeah, and 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 this is really crucial. So look, this was a Trump policy. Uh, it was uh, promulgated in the Federal Register uh, after notice and comment in March of 2018. And it interfered with state regulators exercising their authority to protect consumers in their states, right? And- um, you might recall, uh, you know, <laughs> Betsy DeVos, uh, and her ties to, uh, these sorts of, uh, uh, shady student loan servicers. So this policy really is a, uh, a complete reversal of, of that, of that agenda, right? Of, uh, Trump's policy of putting the for-profit college industry and student loan servicers ahead of, you know, student borrowers, normal human being. Us. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, DeVos, as you know, previously argued that the federal government's oversight preempted state regulations when it came to policing the student loan industry, that it occupied the field and prevented states from regulating that at all. Mm. Well, uh, a group of Democratic attorneys general um, th these are from California, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Iowa, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, Oregon and Rhode Island and Virginia and D.C. sent a joint letter to the Secretary of Department of Education, Cardona, and they sent that letter this week in support of this policy change. But they did ask for clarification that, quote, state laws regulating servicers are not preempted except in certain narrow circumstances. What does that mean? Yeah. So. Uh, it, it's the the reverse of of what we just talked about. So when right, the federal government has the right to regulate interstate commerce, right? And student loans are very clearly interstate commerce. Um, never never minding the fact that uh, many of them are you know for in in state students attending in state colleges, right? It's still something that the federal government can regulate if it wants, right? And so. The way in which that works is really that there are three options that uh, that Congress can do. Uh, and then when they've delegated that power to an executive branch like the Department of Education, that the DOE acting under congressional authority can do. Um, and the first is uh, you can just promulgate uh, you, you can pass laws or promulgate regulations uh, at the federal level that sit and work side by side with the state regulations. Um, the second is you can explicitly preempt certain state regulations that that work to the contrary. Uh, or the third option is 
what we talked about. You can occupy the field. You can say, nope, this is an area that uh, federal regulations only, and we don't want the state getting involved at all. And so we're really moving from that category three mm. to a category one slash two, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. In general, uh, we want we want states to be able to uh, promulgate regulations, pass laws for consumer protection against predatory student loan servicers. Um, we've all had experiences with that. Right. And it's a real multi-billion dollar problem uh, that is, you know, crying out for uh, for help. And um, some of so, sometimes the best way to help is to, you know, get monsters out of the way at the federal level. So um, so <laughs> we've done that. Good work. Yeah. A personal note, um, uh, Forbes Women, Forbes magazine came out with an article about me today and about the fact that my student loans were discharged under Biden's new rule uh, for veterans, for 100 percent disabled veterans mm. not having to have that three year uh, yeah. monitoring period. I did end up graduating and it did end up helping me until I was actually removed from my government job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now I now I just get to call myself doctor. So that's kind of cool. Uh, but, you know, aside from that, and in all seriousness, um, the the scope and breadth that at which the Biden administration is attacking student loan debt in this country, this is a part of it, you know, yep. and and I, I think that it's uh, he's he's chipping away at it, and he is right now, and he has said very recently, looking at the legality of signing an executive order waiving fifty thousand dollars of student debt for every American. He's looking at the legality of it. Um, they're they're reviewing that, um, and uh, if he can, he will. I I have the fullest confidence. And 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 let me jump in on that, right? Because you know we have a lot of folks among our listeners who have sent in questions like that, who have you know sort of expressed disappointment where you know X uh, opinion column has said, you know, uh, Biden could just wipe out your student loan debt with the stroke of a pen. Um, there is, speaking as a lawyer, there is a good reason to proceed cautiously and expeditiously here. And that is when you make that announcement, people will rely on it. Right. And that's the whole point. Right. We're talking about uh, individuals for whom that debt is a significant uh, source of their outstanding liabilities. It affects their lives. It affects their spending. And the worst possible thing would be to announce you're going to do something uh, and immediately have, you know, a which will happen, right? A right wing group in a right wing state is going to sue to first enjoin and then overturn the, the whatever that executive order is. And could you imagine, right, if you if you have done so incautiously uh, uncarefully, like all the could news they, says, hey, could they yeah. legally make you your, your student loans are back on? Uh, it, 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 that is uh, a certainly a possibility. Because I'm right? concerned if we if we end up with a Republican president, then they undo. The no, it, it, it. So let me, so let me, let me be clear about that. And and, and I'm glad you asked the question that way, right? Um, I could see a court undoing the executive order under certain circumstances, right? Saying uh, that this 
that there was no legal basis to announce that the that the student loan debt was forgiven. Um, I do not see right if it is upheld a subsequent administration being able to spring back that debt once it's been legally discharged. Right. Once it has been legally discharged, you will have a, a defense in any effort to collect of uh, the government told me I didn't have to anymore. Uh, so. Uh, so no, right? Like, it, but but the but the key thing is to make sure that that first step is is appropriate and is legal. And like, this is the difference between having a grown up in the White House and <laughs> you know having a man baby, right? Like, it took three years for Donald Trump to get the uh to get his Muslim ban through, uh, and that's because the people writing it were idiots. Yeah. And 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 look, like I'm glad, right? Like that was a horrible policy, right? But we have seen the consequences. One of the few areas where the Trump administration consistently lost, even in front of right wing courts, even in front of the Supreme Court, was on executive actions that were undertaken recklessly with insufficient fi uh, uh, factual findings uh, in contravention of the Administrative Procedures Act. So DACA. Uh, um, yeah. Another uh, it, example. I mean, there's it, a million examples, really. It, honestly. It, so I get it. Right. And especially people who are suffering. It took me 20 years to pay off my my law school loan. So I, I, I'm with you. Right. Um, people who are suffering under crippling student loan debt uh, want immediate action. But, you know, it, it, it you want to do it right. Yeah, and I'm wondering if um, they find out that it would be illegal if he would announce that, if he would say, I tried and the I have found out because of this reason and this reason I cannot wipe out everyone's student debt, but I wanted to like, or will he just stay quiet? I would just stay quiet, but uh, it's, that's a tough call. But yeah, but, no, uh, yeah. no, you know what? Actually, I would tell everybody. I mean, I, I, I lean that direction yeah, right, to say, because that's what I've been wanting the Department of Justice to do. If they're not yeah. going to prosecute Trump on obstruction of justice, come out and tell, tell me. Agreed. Agreed. A hundred percent. So, yeah, never mind. I, I, I withdraw my last statement. <laughs> Belay my last. Uh, I am for the transparency. I was All just right. thinking in terms of people personally hating your guts. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, and look like it, it. All of those are real things to balance. Yeah, 100%. And I agree. But, you know, he was he was he was uh, fucking put his balls on the table with the Afghanistan thing. So I, I can't imagine he wouldn't do it with this, too. But we'll see. Yep. All right. Uh, everybody stick around. We have this amazing interview next about the Sussman indictment. And I put indictment in quotes. <laughs> uh, I guess technically it is an indictment. Um, and we're going to talk about the eight million sixty two hundred and fifty million thousand flaws in that indictment with uh, Eliason, right? Uh, yep. who, you, who you know. Yeah, my buddy Randall Eliason will be will be a familiar voice for, you know, some of our audience. And I highly recommend you pause us here and go read his op-ed in the Washington Post. Oh, um, it's so good. Before uh, before we uh, get underway with this discussion, because I think once you, once you have that op-ed in your head, you'll have a, a good framework for with which to listen to the following interview. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back with Randall Eliason. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG from Clean Up on Aisle 45, and today's show is brought to you by Policy Genius. It is never a bad time to find ways to bundle your home and auto insurance and save on coverage with Policy Genius. In fact, when I wanted to leave USAA because they wouldn't stop advertising on Tucker Carlson, I used Policy Genius. They make it easy to compare home and auto insurance all in one place. Policy Genius can help look for similar coverage to what you have now, but at a lower price. They've saved customers an average of $1,250 per year over what they were paying for home and auto before. 
Their team will handle all the paperwork to set up your new policy or switch you over to a current one. Uh, And getting started is easy. You just head to PolicyGenius.com and answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property. And then PolicyGenius does the legwork. They take it from there. They'll compare rates from America's top insurers, from Progressive to Allstate, and find you the lowest quotes. The Policy Genius team can look for ways to save you more, also including bundling your home and auto policies. And if they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. Their top-notch service has earned Policy Genius thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google. So head to PolicyGenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. And joining us now is a friend of all of the shows and first-time guest on Clean Up on Aisle 45. Uh, you know him as our uh, go-to ex-prosecutor on opening arguments, uh, law professor, uh, ex-Zuckerman partner, and uh, my good friend, Randall Eisen. Randall, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, great to have you. So I, I want to dive right into it. Um, if I am to understand this correctly... Uh, uh, Michael Sussman has been indicted. Um, it's a huge, I mean, you know, 27 page indictment. Uh, it's, it's really, really bad for, I I don't know, Hillary Clinton or something. I, I, why is that this is, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen on earth. Right. Right. Yep. Basically. Okay. Well, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. This has been clean up on aisle 45. (laughs) Yep. So this is a 27-page indictment for a really trivial, weak, single charge. And so you can't really avoid the conclusion that the purpose of the indictment is more political than legal. It's a chance to lay out a bunch of the kind of conspiracy-driven theories about the Trump-Russia connection. Uh, Most of the indictment has actually very little to do with the actual charge, and the actual charge against Sussman is remarkably weak. Well... So so let me start. I continue to kind of play a little devil's advocate here. Um, the charge is an 18 USC 1001 making a false statement. And I, I seem to recall uh, you thinking that that was a significant charge uh, when that was the product of the Mueller investigation against, you know, Papadopoulos and Michael Flynn and and folks of that of that ilk. Well, yeah, this when is all a serious five, crime, right? When all five elements of the crime are met. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey. right. That's right. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the crime itself. It is a serious crime. It's just that the, when the facts of your case don't demonstrate that crime has been committed, that's what the problem is. I mean, the comparison to Michael Flynn is inevitable and it's being made a lot, um, but it, there's really no comparison at all. I mean, Flynn lied about things that were at the heart of what the FBI was investigating is basically Trump campaign communications with Russia. He lied about his communications mm-hmm. with the Russian ambassador. His denial of those conversations had a real impact on the investigation right away because it kind of foreclosed investigators from asking all the logical follow-up questions, which is, you know, well, who told you to have that call? Who did you tell about the call? What happened after that call? All of those things. When he says, no, it didn't happen, you know, they kind of have to go away and not do that. So even though they did have tape recordings of the calls, you know, there was still plenty of reasons to talk to him, plenty of things to ask him, and his denials foreclosed that. So that was an actual legitimate material false statement. Uh, this, on the other hand, is is a uh, uh, incredibly weak, both factually and legally. The statement that's made isn't important. There's no indication that it had any effect or would likely have had any effect on the FBI at all and didn't go to the merits of anything they were looking at. It was just sort of a preliminary, like, why am I here talking to you statement. So uh, not the same at all. There's nothing wrong with the charge itself, but when it's applied in a case like this, that's when it's, you know, 
not appropriate. Well, yeah, and uh, and Jim Baker, who is the person who, just to sort of frame it here, apparently the charge here is because uh, Sussman had a conversation with Jim Baker, who was, I think, what general counsel at the time, right? right. And and apparently the the lie, quote unquote, here was that he told Jim Baker he wasn't working on behalf of any client. He wasn't bringing this information on the communications between the Trump Tower server and Alpha Bank to Jim Baker on behalf of any client. The The problem here with materiality, as, as you just raised for me, is that, you know, we know that Jim Baker testified to Congress um, and when asked uh, if, you know, if, if he was working for if, if Sussman was working for anybody at the time. Uh, Baker said he did not recall if mm. if, um, if if Sussman had said that. And that just kind of that's their only really weak piece of evidence. And my question for you is, since there isn't a, a direct 302 or a recording or any other witness to this, it boils down to a he said, he said, which, you know, and a tie goes to the defendant. But I mean, there's there's really no it. Apparently, it's a note from someone the evidence is a note from someone that Jim Baker talked to after the conversation, and that feels like hearsay to me. Right. Now, there's all kinds of issues with it. I mean, it's even worse than you, than you said, because it doesn't even have, we don't have to go to Baker's testimony before Congress the following year. Um, it's right in the indictment itself. The indictment itself says that they knew he was representing, that he represented the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign. But then, uh, then it claims that, but he didn't say that at this particular meeting or at this meeting, you know, he said he wasn't there on behalf of any client, but there's no suggestion they were deceived about who he was or who his clients were. They knew that. And that's right in the notes and that's right in the indictment. So this, the argument is, okay, this attorney comes in, we know he represents the Clinton campaign. We know he represents the DNC. It's six weeks before the presidential election. And he comes in and gives us all this alleged dirt on Donald Trump but we thought he was just coming in as a good citizen who happened to stumble across this and had nothing to do with his representation of those clients. That's the argument. And that's the lie that now they've indicted him for. And, you know, like I said in my column, if that's really true, somebody at the FBI should be indicted for aggravated naivete. I mean, the idea that... <laughs> yeah, that was a great line. The idea that, you know, oh, we had no idea that he might be doing this on behalf of a client. When they knew that he represented them, and it was just a few weeks before the campaign, it's just it's just nonsense. Well, that and even if they if 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 he was representing a client, there's nothing illegal about that. I am immediately thinking of the uh, when they tried to indict Andy McCabe, and and the grand jury wouldn't come back with it because Andy McCabe had told uh, an investigator, I think it was the IG or or somebody at the FBI, that he had he didn't recall approving a Washington Post article and and Lisa Page when asked about it Lisa Page says well there's no criminal intent here to lie there's nothing to cover up because he has absolute authority to approve that whether you know so even with he's got no reason to lie unlike Flynn it would be silly for Sussman to lie about this because again he knows the FBI knows who he is and they know who his clients are so you know what could he possibly gain by by lying about that and, you know, I think, to be clear, that is the entire lie that's alleged here. It's it's that when Sussman came in, 
he said he wasn't there on behalf of any client. And the indictment alleges, well, in fact, he was there on behalf of the Clinton campaign and this unnamed tech executive. That's the whole lie. Nothing to do with the substance of the computer information provided. You know, no allegation that they doctored the information to try to implicate Trump or anything like that. And that would be a meaningless and pointless lie because the FBI knows who he is. So it doesn't make any sense. And that's just kind of logically. Then factually, like you were alluding to, how do you prove that? There's no recording. It's not written down. There's no other witnesses. So it's one person's word against the other. Five from a converse, single conversation five years ago. That, that he said much more, you know, much more closer in time to the conversation. He didn't really recall the details. You know, how do you prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury that the precise wording of what was said in that conversation versus that it was some kind of miscommunication, misunderstanding? The little tiny word changes in these cases make all the difference in the world, and that's why you need substantial evidence of what exactly was said, and you got to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. There's no room for misinterpretation or misunderstanding or wiggle room here. They clearly were lying. And I've never seen a case like this where the entire case is based on one person's word five years ago, and there's no corroborating evidence of what was said. Wow. Um, well, let's, I want to drill down into the statement it, itself. Um, and, and again, kind of push for potential weaknesses here because you are correct. I mean, this is paragraph four of the indictment that says, uh, the, the, the false statement is that, uh, he was not there, uh, doing his work on the aforementioned allegations quote for any client. That is the sum total. Those three words are the sum total of what are alleged to be false. Uh, and that that led, uh, Jim Baker to conclude that he was acting as a good citizen, merely passing along information, not as a paid advocate or, or political operative. Um, from a legal ethics standpoint, if my representation of a client is a matter of public record uh, and uh, I am publicly testifying in for something that that uh, in which I I fervently believe that also happens to benefit my client. Um, it's not a false statement for me to say I'm here as a citizen and not on behalf of my client, right? Sure. Yeah. I yeah. Think, I think it's so, absolutely right, yeah. and that could be what was going on here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it yeah. was like when I was hosting <clears throat> the Mueller She Wrote uh, a podcast, and I, you know, didn't say to avoid running afoul of the Hatch Act. I didn't say my title and I didn't say I'm speaking about the Mueller investigation on behalf of the Department of Veterans Affairs. You know, I just I, I didn't um, to, to prove a negative like that is is weird. So, you know, and the other thing, too, that you brought up in your opinion piece um, is is that this has the scope of what Durham was supposed to look at is the oranges of the russia investigation and and this particular 1001 charge although i mean a special counsel can go and investigate into things that you know uh, wherever it leads but this has nothing to do with the origins of the russia investigation at all i mean that started way before all this yeah i mean i think arguably his charge is a little broader than just the origins it's kind of the the origins and the conduct of it i think i mean is the idea because it's supposed he's supposed to be investigating this witch hunt claim, right? But, and so you could say, well, this Alpha Bank allegation was kind of part of it that the FBI was was running down. But the other, the other fact then is, of course, nothing came of it, right? I mean, they investigated it, they decided there was nothing to it. 
They didn't pursue it any further. Mueller didn't even include it in his report because everybody decided there was no basis to it. So this was really a, a nothing burger in so many ways, not just in you know, Sussman's alleged false statement, but then that the data itself, you know, didn't pan out. But the key thing for the 1001 charge is there's no allegation that the FBI would have done anything differently. If he had said he was there on behalf of the Clinton campaign, the indictment says only that they might have looked at the data, they might have felt differently about it, or they might have considered, you know, the, the origins of the data differently, things like that. Not a word about any single thing they would have actually done differently. Um, which again goes to the materiality question: Did this really matter, even if even if it was a lie, which I think they're not going to be able to prove? Did it make a bit of difference, even potentially, to what the FBI would do with that information? And I don't think they can prove that either. And and what is sort of the threshold for materiality in cases like this, in terms of you know what what do you have to prove to say, oh, this would have made a difference? Is it sufficient mm -hmm. to say, you know, well, we would have looked at everything differently? Or do you typically have to show, you know, a chain of inferences that, that, that got broken? Well, the standard is really low. I mean, it's a really low bar. It's that the information had to at least have the potential to influence the decision of the agency that it was directed to. So you don't have to show an actual impact. Uh, okay. All you have to show it. So it's based on the nature of the statement itself, not on what actually happened as a result. And so, you know, that's, it's usually not a very difficult hurdle to get over because usually any case you'd ever think about bringing in materiality is going to be pretty clear. If it didn't matter what they said, why are you bothering bringing the case? And that's one thing that makes this particular charge so unusual. It's that as low as that materiality standard is, this you know comes pretty close to maybe not making it. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's a jury question, you know, so they're going to have to put on evidence in the prosecution about, you know, how this potentially impacted what the FBI did or how they approached the information or how they investigated. And maybe they can do that. Um, but it certainly doesn't leap out at you. Uh, and again, I, I, as again, in contrast to the Flynn false statements, for example, which mm. clearly not only had a potential impact, but an actual impact, you know, and he was lying in the investigation that was going on, you know, Sussman wasn't lying in the special counsel's investigation, he was allegedly lying, you know, back in the precursor investigation. So he's not even right. affecting anything that uh, that uh, the special counsel is doing. Well, what kind of testimony could they put on? I'm sort of struggling uh, other than calling Baker himself. And I think Allison kind of went through why that would be a challenge, given his subsequent public statements. Um yeah, but I mean, I, they've got to call him. I mean, he's the only evidence of what was said, right? He's he's the government's yeah. star witness. There's no way to avoid calling Baker. He, he's the only guy. Uh, but like you said, he's going to be subject to all kinds of impeachment. Yeah, but that's the facts of what was said. In terms of materiality, yeah. I mean, you can put on, you know, some one or more of the investigators to say, well, if we'd known this, we would have done X, Y, Z differently. You know, this this, yeah. is, this is how it could have potentially influenced us had we known he was really there on behalf of the Clinton campaign. And they might be able to do that. You know, they might be able to come up with something. Like I said, it's really a low hurdle to get over. But it's certainly like on the face of the indictment doesn't doesn't leap out at you. I mean, it's not very often these cases lose on materiality. But <laughs> like I said, this comes about as close as you, as you can get, I think. Well, let me ask both of you, um, since I'm not a lawyer, this question, because purportedly this was 
you know, sent up the chain to the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland allowed this indictment to happen. And from what I understand, his lawyers, who I think are named Berkowitz and Bosworth, Michael Bosworth from uh, Latham Watkins, had written a letter to Merrick Garland saying, don't do this. But we don't know what's in that letter and we don't know the reasonings why. Uh, we're assuming that it's a lot of what you have here in this op-ed. But isn't, I mean, why doesn't Sussman just file a motion to dismiss based on the fact that Durham was appointed with no authority? I mean, special counsel regulations say that the special counsel shall come from outside of the government. And he was definitely not outside the government. I mean, I, I'd be filing a, a, a motion to dismiss based on the fact that he was appointed with no authority and couldn't even have conduct these investigations in the first place. And then secondly, why did Garland allow this to go forward? I'm assuming he didn't want to look like he was playing politics. Yeah, that, that may still be coming, a motion to challenge the indictment as, as the result of a lawless, you know, illegal special counsel appointment. Uh, I mean, the, the logical time to file that would be now that there's actually an indictment, right? There wouldn't have been a logical time to do it before. So maybe I that's mean, Manafort coming. tried it. Yeah. You know, Manafort tried it like nine times, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> Mueller had no authority to be the special counsel. Not before I, it was indicted. Yeah, they, they all did. They all yeah. they all filed. Before it was indicted, but, uh, though? I don't know. Yeah. Oh no, no, no. No, it was not, after. Not pre indictment. So yeah. that's a that's a really good point yeah. that, that that may be coming. Now now is when then, it's uh, ripe, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you were about to hit the second point. Yeah, I've wondered Before about that too. And I think, you know, I mean, if Garland had intervened, so he's supposed to be an independent counsel and special counsel, he's supposed to be independent, right? Sure, you're still under the jurisdiction of the attorney general, but the idea is you're supposed to have a lot of independence. And if Garland intervenes to overrule the indictment of Hillary Clinton's former lawyer, you know, you can imagine the politics. I mean, you can imagine mm -hmm. the, the, the optics of that, right? And and how much heat and light that would generate, or heat anyway. Um, yeah, I have. I, I sort of have it in my head that he's yeah. like reading this indictment, you know, having a scotch, smoking a pipe, <laughs> laughing, saying, "Go for I, it, bro. Think, you want to try it? Go for it." I think that's the better choice, actually. To say, you know, it's not terribly, you know, good for Sussman. But <laughs> right. but DOJ is much better off from Gar you know, the Biden DOJ is much better off saying, let this Trump special counsel go forth and make an idiot out of himself and watch this case fall apart. Rather than maybe maybe he could have written a three page memo that quoted parts of this indictment and released it a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, in we advance. were to put a bar spin yeah, on it. Right. But yeah. yeah, but that, you know, I, I'm the only reason I ask about the, you know, asking for a motion to dismiss because he wasn't appointed under any authority is that that didn't happen under Kleinsmith. And I'm wondering if they had maybe gone down that road and found out that they couldn't get that dismissal. I mean, we were Klein Smith is the lawyer who I guess falsified an email in the Carter page case, another nothing burger. Mm -hmm. um, it, but you know, me like I, I was always wondering why they didn't file that motion to dismiss uh, based on Durham, not being a, a legitimate special counsel at that point. And I'm, I'm guessing maybe there's a, maybe he is, or there's some sort of rule that they found or they've tried to go down that path. I don't know. Well, I have to go back and look at the timing. Are, are you sure that Durham had been appointed as a special counsel at the time of Kleinsmith's case? Because initially he was just uh, oh, a special oh, appointment. That's right. Barr yeah. had just appointed him as a 
That's right, because he put a guy on the Flynn case. He put a guy on the on the. Yeah, he just uh, appointed him as a neutral case. prosecutor to do the investigation, but he didn't actually appoint him under the special counsel regs until right before the Trump administration was ending. Right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's mm. well. That that answers that question. Thank you. Mm-hmm. See, this is why we have you on. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I have to ask this question because it it just seems so crazy. You know, we when we look at these indictments that. Uh, have anonymized uh, non, you, you know, uh, collateral individuals and institutions. And, you know, sometimes they're hilarious, like, you know, president of the United States won, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, th- this one seems to me to have an awful lot more of those uh, efforts to anonymize than your average indictment that that makes it feel kind of silly, such as, for example, noting that Michael Sussman was a lawyer at a major international law firm, law mm-hmm. firm one. Well, I mean, you know, that's Googleable, right? Like the the court could take judicial notice of the fact that he was a partner at Perkins Coie, right? Like <laughs> it 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 seems oddly written to me. And I was just curious uh, if it uh, if it struck you that way as well. Well, you're right. There were a lot. I mean, there's sort of more than the usual number of individual one, individual two, researcher one, researcher two. I mean, the general and that does get kind of silly sometimes. The general policy behind it is a DOJ policy that you don't name people in indictments that you're not charging mm-hmm. um, because you don't want to implicate them in possible criminal misconduct or criminal, you know, allegations, if they're not going to have a right to come into court and defend their good name. So you use all these pseudonyms for people who haven't been charged. And sometimes it does get pretty silly. But what about the anonymization of an agency that isn't an <laughs> indictable thing? Because they, you know, they say he went went to the FBI, FBI, general counsel, they named Baker, they named the FBI, but then they say he also went to agency two. Yeah. Uh, that's why anonymize agency two. Why not just tell us it's the whatever CIA? I don't know what it was, but w- w- do you know what it was, Andrew? But also why anonymize that? No, I don't. I don't know what it was, and I don't know why you anonymize that. I agree that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, you could, if there was some investigative aspect you were trying to preserve, you know, from becoming public, you were worried about some new detail being disclosed. You know, by this is this is something that isn't widely known before, and you're trying to maintain the confidentiality of that evidence for now, or something maybe. But yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I I I want to ask a, a couple more kind of terminal questions, you know, just for avoidance of doubt and to be before clear. before you do that. Oh yeah, yeah, please. Sorry. My my thought on that, the only thing I could come up with was that it was the NSA, and the NSA was like, "Don't mention us." That's, that's the only <laughs> thing I could come up yeah. with, and I was like, "Well, because wouldn't the NSA look at sort of that international back and forth between a server and something in Alphabet, and wouldn't that be under their purview?" I don't know, but that's the only thing I can think of is that the agency itself was like, whatever the agency was, was like, "Yeah, we don't want anyone to know that we monitor those kinds of things or something." Mm-hmm. Don't put the senior indictment, or we'll have to kill you. Right. <laughs> yeah, like a like a source like a sources and methods kind of thing. Anyway, sorry for interrupting, Andrew. Oh no continue. no 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 that that's I I'm glad you shared that because that uh, I think that seems very plausible to me or at least more plausible than anything I can come up with. Um, I, I I want to be clear. Uh, other than right, so this is an indictment for false statement. Um, assume there there's a tremendous amount 
of allegations uh, in this indictment regarding Sussman talking to the media and trying to stir up interest in this story. And I, I, I just want to ask you, you know, as a point blank question um, that th there's there's nothing that is a federal crime about uh, a campaign lawyer attempting to uh, influence uh, or or uh, increase awareness of a potential issue like this in the press, right? Not, no, nah, dude. There's there's whole <laughs> businesses built on this. I mean, if we, <laughs> you know, oppo research firms. Yeah. No, that's know? it. It's it's opposition research, and it's definitely not illegal inherently. And there's no allegation in this indictment that any of that was illegal. So, what like I was saying at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, the indictment feels more like a political document than a legal one because it's just reciting, isn't this terrible how they tried to pitch this stuff and they tried to get the press interested in these details about the computer server? And, you know, so maybe you think that's unseemly or nasty or, you know, knife fight politics or whatever, but it's not a crime. But, it, but, yeah. but spending pages and pages and pages talking about that does then feed, you know, the, the Trump narrative about how the Clinton campaign was involved in trying to fabricate this Russian hoax and, and set him up and and get the media to get interested in it. But again, those those things aren't alleged to be criminal and they don't really have much of anything to do with the charge against Sussman. So Well, and, I, I look forward to the motions to dismiss. Motion, motions. Can you put can you like this is just a legal question now. If you were going to put the motion in because he wasn't appointed under any authority, could you put in the same motion all of the reasons that the case should be dismissed and just make it one motion to dismiss? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could do either way. It's all a matter of your personal style. I look forward to to them or it. I'm an omnibus kind of guy. You're so. an omnibus guy? Yeah. Um, the, the trick is, you know, with dismissal on a lot of these types of issues, it's it's going to be challenging to get it actually dismissed because the response is going to be these are jury questions. The government has the government has to prove materiality. They've got to prove falsity, and we might look at it and think they're never going to be able to do it. But getting a judge to throw it out without giving the government the chance to do it is pretty difficult. So it's going to be far more likely if the government doesn't decide to drop it entirely, which probably won't happen. That would probably require going to trial. The ultra virus claim would would toss it out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and they don't want to make, uh, you know, um, they want to give like bend over backwards to give due process in these high profile cases uh, from at least from what I've seen over the past five years. <laughs> they really, you know, <laughs> but I did see some I saw something interesting on Twitter, Andrew, that I'd be curious what you would think of it. But I saw a defense lawyer saying they should just assert speedy trial rights and just go like, let's try this case in two months. We're ready. You know, I mean, instead of dragging it off for a year and a half, put their feet to the fire and say, we're ready. Let's go. Uh, it, that strikes me as as pretty smart strategically. Yeah. Right. Like I, I, I certainly have seen that uh, in in civil cases where, you know, one party has uh, a decided I once had a, a, a 90 party uh, insurance case. Uh, in which no discovery had been exchanged. Uh, and we showed up uh, on what was scheduled for the day of trial. Right. Uh, and it was in state court for procedural reasons that are not worth going into here. And uh, plaintiff's counsel got up with a straight face and said, 
well, Your Honor, we're prepared to try this here today. Well, there was they could not have met their prima facie case hmm. trying that today, but they knew half the insurer counsel in the room didn't even know what the underlying, you know, uh, uh, coverage issue was. Right. Like they, they knew that 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 forced us collectively to beg and scrape for as much time as we could possibly get, which was, you know, a tenth of what we wanted. So. Um, so, yeah, it it. it I, I like that as a uh, as a potential strategic move. Either you remember the Ted Stevens trial, the senator from Alaska. It's been a while now. Yeah, um, I remember Ted Stevens, but not the particular yeah, on the case. So you got, I think they indicted him in like July or August, and the election was in November. And he said, I want a trial before the election. I want a chance to clear my name before the election and just mm. completely destroyed. I mean, the prosecutors were just not ready. And the defense said, we're going, we're ready. And Speedy Trial Act has 70 days. You got to try them within 70 days. So they put their feet to the fire. They made them try the case. They actually convicted him. But in the process, they screwed up so bad with the discovery and the Brady material that it ended up all out. getting thrown out. Yeah, they reversed on appeal. And I think that's the reason, just because they pushed him. You know? I, I'm curious, um, who, who at DOJ would try this case? Well, <laughs> someone in... Uh, in the special counsel's office. No. Yeah. Yeah. Are there are there permanent lawyers assigned to the special counsel's office? I Yeah, I mean permanent they're they're like detailed. I mean, it's usually other DOJ attorneys who he can sort of handpick to come over and work on this with them and they get detailed to the special counsel's office. And then when they're done, they go back to whatever, you know. Uh, oh, I see. And that's all within kind of the initial mandate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and one final point before we let you go. I mean, this isn't uh the rural juror. This is a this is a Washington D.C. jury. Um, mm. I mean, they're going to have to they're they're going to be picking people off who are in the jury selection room because they work for Perkins Coie. <laughs> it's uh, the only answer I have as to why he would even bring this case is just for political fodder. He can't win it. He I just I feel like he can't win it, and so that just sort of bolsters the argument that it's purely politics. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and. A DC jury is also not going to be shocked by these, you know, allegations of opposition <laughs> research and stuff like that. You know, they're pretty jaded about all that stuff already. All right. Well, Randall, thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, and uh, if we if we haven't plugged your uh, recent article in the Washington Post, to which we have referred on multiple occasions, uh, that is a fantastic read. Um, anything uh, Anything you want to plug here? Nope, I'm good. Pleasure to be with you. <laughs> Thanks. It's nice always, to meet you. Always fantastic. Thank you. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Comings and Goings. Ooh, ooh. President Biden continues to work filling vacancies in key executive branch positions. And last week, he announced five more nominations that require the advice and consent of the Senate. Mm, let's start with his two DOD nominees. Nicholas Guertin, am I saying mm -hmm. that right? He's the so. nominee for Director of Operational Test and Evaluation. And John Sherman the proposed chief information officer. Big job. Yeah. Uh, Guertin is retired Navy Reserve engineering duty officer. He has worked for decades in submarine operations, which to volunteer for that, God bless you. <laughs> uh, they, they didn't, when I was in the Navy, they didn't let women into on submarines and they were seemed really apologetic about it. They were like, we're so sorry, you can't volunteer for sub duty. And I'm like, yeah, me too. What a bummer. <laughs> um, 
And also, I have, I have like slight claustrophobia that, that comes into play sometimes. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, well, just me being on a tube in the bottom of the ocean with a bunch of dudes, just no thanks. <laughs> um, they, uh, he also worked on ship construction and maintenance and the development and testing of weapons. Okay, so for the past four years, he's been working in academia at Carnegie Mellon University's Software Engineering Institute performing applied research for the Department of Defense. This is no slouch. Yeah, I I understood every third word of that, but welcome aboard. <laughs> and uh, Sherman, the CIO nominee, Chief Information Officer, again, big job. He's presently the acting CIO at DOD, so he's been doing it. Before that, he was the CIO of the intelligence community. For his career, he has... Can you imagine being the Chief Information Officer <laughs> of the intelligence community? Yeah, right. <laughs> now, for his career, he's had nearly 25 years of experience in national security technology and innovation across both the intelligence community and the Department of Defense. So, you know, qualified. Uh, serving in an act acting capacity, nominated to take over the top job on a permanent basis. So welcome to Sherman as well. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. I want to talk about Margot Schlanger. Mm. That is uh, President Biden's nominee for Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now, you might be thinking, wait, why does the USDA have a civil rights division? But as soon as you think about that for uh, a couple of seconds and realize that that would cover the dynamics of, you know, fruit and vegetable pickers, you will realize just how crucial this position is. Um, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights is responsible for providing leadership and direction for the fair and equitable treatment of USDA customers and employees and ensuring compliance with a broad range of anti-discrimination Laws. Yeah, that's a, the, another big job. And I, and I see why you're excited, because Schlanger is a civil rights champion. Okay, She served as, uh, at the, as the presidentially appointed officer for civil rights and civil liberties in the Obama administration's Department of Homeland Security. She did that in 2010 and 2011, um, leading DHS oversight when she did that on issues such as immigration detention conditions, racial profiling, border screening, language access, you know, for, for people going to court. Uh, or anything really, language access and disability rights. And, and she chaired an, an interagency group addressing disability access to disaster planning and response. That's huge. And she yeah. she founded and presently directs the Civil Rights Litigation Clearinghouse, which is a national repository of information about large-scale civil rights cases. I didn't know that existed. That's awesome. And Schlanger has written and testified about how federal agencies can better implement civil rights goals and has served as a court-appointed <laughs> monitor in a statewide federal case protecting the rights of prisoners with disabilities. And there is still more, right? Schlanger was the principal drafter of the American Bar Association's influential standards on the treatment of prisoners. And again, the lawyers listening in the in the audience know how important uh, ABA standards are, right? Um, she's the author of the leading case book on prisoners' rights. Uh, it's called The Law of Incarceration, Cases and Materials. Um, I want to write a case book someday. Uh, she's double-barreled Yale. We won't hold that against her. Uh, and uh, I, I love this. She was a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <sighs> Well, welcome aboard, Schlanger. And uh, I want to congratulate also Krista Boyd. She's the nominee for Inspector General, Office of Personnel Management over at OPM. She is current member of the whole big scandal when they got rid of the IG over there and it was the OPM that uh, mm -hmm. was working with the, yeah. So now, finally, we have um, Krista Boyd, who's been nominated to that position. She's currently the chief counsel for oversight and policy for the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. 
Um, so she's a a, a lawyer for yep. for the house. And uh, she's made a career out of the two things the IG needs over at OPM, government accountability and waste, right? So waste, fraud, and abuse, and also protecting whistleblowers. Yep. She began her career as counsel for former Georgia Senator Democrat Max Cleland. Yep. Uh, So welcome aboard. And also, I want to congratulate Dr. Robert Otto Valdez, who is uh, Biden's nominee for Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation over at the Department of Health and Human Services. So uh, 30-plus year career in academia. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is this is a read between the lines on this one, right? He served as a special senior advisor on health care reform uh, back in the Clinton administration, you know, back when the original plan was for universal health care. Oh, right? yeah. And he was the lead child health researcher for the historic Rand Corporation's health insurance experiment back uh, late 70s, early 80s. That was a multi-year longitudinal study designed to evaluate the feasibility of of free universal health care. So, huh. uh, you know, I can't say that, the, but I can say that you are bringing on board somebody who has made his life's work uh, and passion uh, to, to evaluate universal health care. And hmm. uh, that's pretty good to me. Yeah. And also kind of telling uh, about where, where we think this might be going in the future. Yeah. As far as I hope so. Is concerned. Yeah. Same. Everyone. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Seriously. <laughs> Hello. I'm sorry we don't have any buh-byes because those mm-hmm. are more fun to read out, but uh, I think we've rooted out just about everybody. Let's hope anyway. Yeah, I think so. Uh, all right. Well, that's it. That's our show, Andrew. Another really great show. And thanks so much again to uh, Randall for for coming on and explaining um, <laughs> the ridiculous of, of assessment <laughs> indictment. Um, you know, I mean, we saw over the last... Since I've been covering the news as a podcaster, we had an indictment of Democrat Gregory Craig. Okay, in the Mueller investigation, I think yep. that was thrown out. I have to double check, but that was for lobbying uh, right, on behalf of right. a foreign entity, and then um, without registering Farah. And then we had Klein Smith, who I don't know if it was a Democrat or Republican, but he was working on the Carter Page case, who falsified a, an email there, and now we have this. So. To, to when you anyone who's worked for the government understands this, when you look at the scope and breadth of the Trump Russia investigation, the Mueller investigation, the oranges of, of all that, to only find one and a half things wrong and then a, a couple problems with a FISA uh, <laughs> application is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Um, <laughs> That they this is a super clean, super yeah. clean, super it, legal, super justified investigation. Well, it's it's part of why I was really happy uh, to 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 bring Randall on. I mean, he, you know, you and I can look at this and go, this seems like twenty six pages of conspiracy theory nonsense that makes no sense, kind of wrapped up in a bow for no reason. Yeah. Uh, but but bringing on. Somebody who's written these in the past, you know, <laughs> to say, uh, yeah, this reads like nonsense and I would not be surprised to see a motion to dismiss. Uh, and uh, it looks like, you know, a political stunt, you know, is um, I'm, I'm I'm glad to to uh, to to have that validation. Yeah. And I'm with them on that. I hope they just expedite it and get that yep. 70 day. Oh, what a great yeah strategy. 
Yeah. I, I was thinking, just dismiss the whole thing. Nah, man, go for it. You know, <laughs> Give, like the old, you know, sue me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Send me the bill. All right. Well, this has been our All show right. and we will see you next week. Andrew, it's always a pleasure to see you, my friend. Yep. Fantastic. Love being here. Love doing the show and uh, can't wait to do it again. All right. We'll see you next week on Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.